Welcome to Party Politics, a podcast to prep you with understandable political chatter for your next cocktail or dinner party. I'm J.I., a political science professor from Texas Southern University. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse, a political science professor from the University of Houston. Every week, Jay and I get together to talk politics, and boy, is there a lot on the menu this week, Jay. We have so many things happening all at once. But before we get to the sort of big event of the week, which is the events in Charlottesville, let's talk about some of the things that are happening policy-wise. So the first is that we have some movement on Obamacare, question mark. What's happening on that? Big question mark. So the Congressional Budget Office had come out with some estimates that basically said that the president may have no choice but to actually try and make Obamacare work or essentially fix it. You know, the president for a long time has talked about he wanted to let Obamacare die on its own. Well, the problem is, is the president had wanted to end the subsidies to insurance companies that would essentially sort of provide what we call premium support for high risk insured. Well, the CBO is saying if you do that, if you remove it, those premiums are going to skyrocket and millions of people will be left uninsured. Yeah, as you said, the president called these bailouts during the campaign, but is effectively the undergirding of Obamacare. I think it uh, it talks sort of to a couple of points. I mean, the first is that it underscores the difficulty that the president and Congress have had in coming up with some kind of a solution to Obamacare and really highlights the fact that nothing has gotten done despite all of the promises and protestations. It also, I think, is a consistent problem in American politics where this kind of brinksmanship ability for the these bright line deadlines to come that force action on behalf of legislatures or behalf of the president is really an ineffective way of governing. So we are at the moment where like a third of the economy is dependent on healthcare, as you've talked about before, and we're going to talk possibly about dropping these. It's really frustrating, I think, as a kind of governing principle to sort of have this be at the bright line end of the cliff every single moment we think about these policy items. Yeah, I mean, this has been sort of a a giant clown show for the last seven years when we're talking about repealing and replacing with literally no actual plan to repeal or replace. So what we're left with is sort of a a, a weakened healthcare system that has to be shored up. I think they're going to end up doing it. There's going to be some sort of compromise because really they have no choice but to do something. But this sort's part of a larger issue, right? I mean, the president had come out and sort of changed his position as it relates to NAFTA, right? He was initially going to be once had argued for repealing it. Now he's saying, hey, let's just renegotiate it. Yeah, the president's negotiators have been tasked with transforming this agreement that he has called the worst agreement to date. And so he's been very vocal about the trade issue. And I think that it is, as you say, a kind of pivot in his position. But I think a pivot which probably recognizes the fact that NAFTA is important to the country as well as especially to Texas. Um, I think the problem for the president is that there's a kind of political math here that might not work in his favor. If he wants to change this agreement in such a way that limits free trade in some way, he might have a problem with his own base. His position on this looks a lot more like the Democrats' position than the Republicans' position. So it could be complicated for him to get this through if, in fact, some substantial changes are made. And he's also got a time problem, right? So this is a trilateral agreement between three countries there's stable leadership in Canada. Justin Trudeau is likely to be reelected till he probably dies. <laughs> right. But that's not the case in Mexico, where mm. uh, President Nieto is, I think, has approval ratings that border on Trump-like levels in the low 30s. Could it be uh, that bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> so so that his party is likely to lose. He only They have an election in 18 months. Um, we have midterms right. Uh, right around that period. And so just as a practical matter, the idea of negotiating a major trade agreement that took at the at the front end 
multiple years to uh, to work through. It just seems very likely um, there's any chance of this happening. Brandon, didn't we we also had some changes, I think, on uh, as it relates to China and trade, didn't we? Yeah, trade has been a hot topic this week. So the president signed an executive order uh, calling on his trade representative to launch an investigation into China's alleged theft of various intellectual properties uh, from the U.S. The trade representative is not allowed to take any sort of further direct action except as a sort of study these items. And various international rules limit the ability of the U.S. to kind of unilaterally respond with sanctions or what have you. But it's a step in the direction of the president suggesting that China has, you know, in quotes, raped our economy and has conducted the greatest theft of our financial sort of spirit in uh, in, in history. So he can back up some of that rhetoric with this executive action, but it doesn't go very far, right? Right. I mean, this is more... I think sort of pomp and circumstance than than rule substance, largely because, as you said, we're governed by World Trade Organization principles in terms of free trade. But I think this sort of dovetails into a larger view of trying to link Chinese trade pattern to sort of foreign policy right. goals. Yes. And, and I suspect what this is, is just nothing more than the president doing what he always does, which is speak in hyperbole, speak in exaggeration. We have to take him seriously, but we should never take him literally because half of what he says is complete nonsense. Yeah. Does he run the risk of angering the Chinese at the moment where the U.S. needs their aid when it comes to dealing with North Korea? Yeah, it's a good question because I think what he's trying to do is say, look, you know, I'm going to threaten something that I have no ability to actually do. Then I'm not going to do it. And as a result, that's a reward for your help with North Korea and other things. I just think that the the Chinese are far more sophisticated than he realizes. And I think he thinks he's negotiating some sort of deal where he starts really low and he has to work his price up. Right. I'm not sure that's the way the world really works. This is not like, yeah, negotiating at a hotel in Midtown. Right? Yeah, exactly. This is, this is much more high stakes. Now, the president could break the law, essentially, and then go at it unilaterally. But I don't think that would happen. And frankly, the Chinese don't respond well to this kind of a thing. They don't like the bluster. And the pushback was pretty severe and pretty swift. So I think the president is running a high stakes gambit here. And I'm not sure it's going to work out in the U.S.'s favor. Well, speaking of China and some of the issues related to foreign policy, we had I guess we could say a de-escalation of tensions with North Korea. What exactly has been happening there? Yeah, there's been a a, a bit of a lull. Um, I think that obviously each card was played from each side and at least hopefully their cooler heads have prevailed. I still think we're in a bit of a holding pattern and there's still going to be some some potential conflict down the road. But I think that as least as it is now, there's been a a calming of uh, much of that. Uh, but Venezuela is also a problem, um, and that's something that uh, Vice President Pence is dealing with. So we had a lot of these kind of flare-ups internationally, and Venezuela is one of them. You want to talk about Venezuela? Yeah, Venezuela continues to still be in crisis. President Maduro has, uh, you know, sort of they had a rigged election where they have a, a national assembly that is basically a rubber stamp for him. He's sort of, uh, Venezuela had always sort of been in a sort of a mode of being, I think, a quasi-dictatorship even before, and it's now a full-blown authoritarian regime. And so what happens, how Venezuela's neighbors react, just overall stability. Um, We have a potential humanitarian crisis there. So there's a lot of issues. The vice president was down there working with our allies in the region to try to solve it. But again, I mean, you know, he's had to cut his trip short and come back because of some of the bigger issues that are now dominating the domestic scene. So let's take a quick break and we come back. Let's talk about that issue because it's something that has dominated the conversation this week. And it's, it's really sort of a, potentially a watershed moment in American history. 
Well, so Jay, obviously the big news of the week has been the events in Charlottesville and the tragedy that occurred there and the fracas that's resulted about what to do about monuments, about the true rift that we find in our country on this issue, but also many issues. So what do you make of the events in Charlottesville from a social perspective or from a political perspective? I think the first thing is, is, is we have to sort of understand, and I think unilaterally, most people, all people should recognize that Nazis are bad people. Let, let's <laughs> right. start off our discussion with it's that, right? Not a hard concept. And so when the march occurred, you know, I think it was billed as a unite the alt-right sort of factions of basically um, American Nazis, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, um, white supremacist organizations sort of got together. And essentially they were marching in defense of a Robert E. Lee statue and the renaming of a park. And part of that had to do with the fact that these sort of older symbols or monuments to the Confederacy are being used as sort of symbols today to, to sort of rally the far right. And where it obviously resulted in, in violence and in, in a tragic death. And, and we had we had people, uh, over 20 people injured. And it just struck a chord, I think, not just politically, but socially in the, in the conscious, became a moral issue for the country. When we've had big events like this, whether when it was the shooting in South Carolina, um, when it was following 9-11, we've had the presidents of the United States stamp up, whether it was George W. Bush after 9-11, whether it was Barack Obama after the, the South Carolina shooting or the Sandy Hook shooting, sort of stand up and, and raise the level of discourse, sort of trying to bring the country together. We saw something pretty different this time, Brandon. Yeah, I think that the president definitely didn't do himself any favors with respect to unifying the country. The fact that presidents play this role of the healer in chief traditionally in these moments is a an opportunity for presidents politically. But it's also, I think, a, a social good and really a, a moral need for the president to play this role, regardless of their party and regardless of their personal opinions. It may be the president has sympathies with these groups or may believe that these things are appropriately handled by the protesters, but there's still a need to be able to draw some unity. And the president didn't do that. Initially, like you note, he implied a kind of very tepid response that this violence is bad. And then he said, well, we should condemn it more furiously. And then he came out multiple days in a row having mentioned that essentially on all sides there is this violence. And this, I think, really struck a chord for people. And frankly, it was a pretty big belly flop for his administration that signals the sense that Really, things aren't that organized or controlled as we were led to believe could happen. This open wound is something that I think has reached a breaking point. And like you said before the break, there's a kind of real cut point here in American social life that needs to be dealt with. The problem is that the tools to deal with it aren't necessarily there and the leaders haven't been as vocal as they could be. So we're going to have to find some way to unify the country on these issues that doesn't involve the president. Yeah, I mean, I think the underlying social question as to whether or not, um, you know, you've got these Confederate monuments across the country. I think that the National Archives have estimated there's about 700 physical monuments and probably a little over 800, 900 that are, that are, are you know, schools that are named, public facilities that yeah, are named after. Like that, streets, yeah. exactly. So a little over 1,000, 1,500. That's a separate question. I think what has, has created so much rancor is this sort of sense of moral equivalency that the president seems to imply here. And I think his failure or inability to kind of 
condemn. I mean, I think famously when David Duke was running for governor, then George H.W. Bush kicked him out of the Republican Party, yeah. effectively. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. He gave right? him his walking paper. Yeah, right. Right. And and I think when when he was asked about it, why is the president getting involved in a local race like this against someone, he said, "Look, it's a it's a moral imperative." Yeah. And both and both George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush came out recently and excoriated the president for not dealing with this as he should, and was were as clear as they could be about the fact that this kind of white supremacy was not acceptable. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and this notion that there were good people marching with them, it's kind of hard to argue that, especially when the tenor of that march was, um, it was essentially a white supremacist march. So sort of the guilt by association, I think <laughs> that's one where we probably want to have that there, or at least it's hard not to make that leap. As a, as a practical matter on the politics, yeah. I think for the president, the big issue is, You've got the bulk of the Republican Party saying the president's wrong on this. I think Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Jeff Flake, Lindsey Graham, Senator McCain, all pretty aggressively attacked him on this. I think this was the moment where at least half of the people you just mentioned are going to run for president, right? This is the moment (laughs) where the president got himself a primary opponent. And not to say that wouldn't have happened otherwise, because there's a lot of ground to cover between now and 2020, but... I think it was the case that it was such a stark break from the politics of decency that the even the Republican Party, which had supported Trump on some things, has decided to break. He is playing to this base, which is so narrow and and so limited that it's going to make it difficult for him to get the Republican nomination, let alone win another election. But it's also the case that we saw many CEOs dropping from his advisory groups and the rift between he and the business community, which started during the election and really peaked during the convention, has magnified. And so if he can't unify his own party, the difficulty of getting the country unified behind him for re-election is going to be nearly impossible. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to sort of try to distill this entire issue down and try to explain why it's so important. So, Jay, there's been so much talked about with respect to Charlottesville, the president's reaction, and how this has shaked out for the country politically and socially. What are we to take from this? Why should people care about this? To me, the, this this issue really sort of distills down to kind of what kind of country we are, sort of the moral compass of the United States of America. The president had an opportunity to bring the country together, sort of unequivocally put aside this sort of alt-right Nazi KKK factor that was in his election to kick it away permanently. He chose not to do that. He created an equivalency, I think, that many, many people find offensive. And I'm not sure how he fully recovers from that. I think he has really absolved himself of the moral relevancy the presidency has. That may be the one remaining true power that presidents have in terms of their public events, in terms of their public stature. The presidency has been eroded in terms of the ability to communicate because technology has changed, polarization has set in. The one thing presidents could do was to unify the country during times of national tragedy. And he has really, I think, muted that in such a way that it limits the power of the presidency, perhaps on a permanent basis. And that's, I think, a serious difficulty for 
our country in terms of fu- healing this wound, but also what's likely to be future wounds. Well, we'll be back next week with more party politics. If you like this political chatter, make sure to check out our Texas-centric episodes too. They're available every Friday afternoon, just like these episodes. As always, thanks to Houston Public Media, our producers, Daisha Clay, Laura Lucas, Edel Howland, and thanks to our engineer, Todd Hulslander. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or from wherever you get your podcast, and don't forget to leave us a review. That'll help other people find the show. Follow us on Twitter with the hashtag PartyPoliticsPod, or you can email us at PartyPoliticsPod at HoustonPublicMedia.org. I'm Jay Iyer. And I'm Brandon Roddinghouse. We'll see you next week.